Some stories need to go under the category person not knowing what they have. A person not knowing what they have. And none fits that better than perhaps a story that many of you learned of even this past week. Um, I saw it, was, I've seen it in various news outlets. Uh, it, it, this is one of the ways it was reported. Uh, it goes something like this. Laura Young was browsing through a Goodwill store in Austin, Texas in 2018 when she found a bust for sale. It was resting on the floor under a table, had a yellow price tag slapped on the, check, on the cheek, on the cheek of the bust, $34.99. She bought it. Turns out it wasn't just another heavy stone curio suitable for plunking in the garden. It was an actual Roman bust from the late 1st century B.C. or early 1st century A.D., which had been part of a Bavarian king's art collection from the 19th century until it was looted during World War II. How it got to Texas remains a mystery, but the most likely path suggests it was taken by an American soldier after the Bavarian king's villa in Germany was bombed by Allied forces, no doubt this news report is going to increase the foot traffic at no few Goodwill stores. And, uh, you know, if this is the time if you want to do a garage sale next weekend, go for it, my friend. You never know what somebody might pay for. So, um, yeah, these stories, person not knowing what they have. The story, the treasure par excellence that trumps all the others, above all the others, a case example would be, though, Easter. The news of the resurrection, Jesus is risen from the dead and he's not going back. That is the greatest example of people not knowing what they have in that news. And that would be us. That would be the church. That would be you and I, ostensibly as followers of this risen Jesus, not actually knowing the treasure that we have in this news. And so, as I said last week, we're going to do one more week and just, just lingering, just lingering in this and staying with this and not moving on too quickly. Yes, we're getting back to Leviticus. Uh, we got two more in that. The plan is, is to move back into that and finish it up uh, this, this month. But we need to stay, stay here, if, we can, if I can put it this way, linger at the empty tomb just a little bit longer. So if you've got a, a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel. Uh, John's Gospel, we're going to be looking for the next few minutes in John chapter 20. This is an account of one of the resurrection appearances there on that first Easter Sunday. Just one of them. There were quite a few that we could look at, uh, but we're looking at yet another one. We looked at one from Luke's gospel last week, but here we're talking about John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. This is the fourth of the gospels that we have. If you're trying to find it, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, then you get into the book of Acts, the early history of the early church. But we're in John, John chapter 20. It's right there towards the very end, not quite at the end, but towards the very end of this gospel. John 20, verses 19 through 23. Hear now God's word. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Can we pray just for a moment? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder right here in John's gospel that when we bow our heads to pray, uh, this is not just sort of a centering exercise, uh, calming our breathing and calming our nerves, but rather we are actually speaking to you and you and your grace are hearing. And indeed, it's not that you put up with that and endure that, but you invite it and you welcome your people as we come to you in prayer. And here at this point in our service this morning, we ask that you would work the soil of our hearts to make it ready to receive the implanted seed of your word. We need it more than we know. We don't even know how much, how desperate we are. Uh, we need you. Oh, would you speak to us? Would you help us to see what those disciples that Sunday night there in that room, to, to see the one that they were seeing and to hear his words. We pray in your name. Amen. I came across this bit from an interview with historian David McCullough recently. He was asked about the motto, this little sign, this little placard that sits over his desk, and it says simply this, look at the fish. Look at the fish. This is David McAuliffe, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian. This is the placard over his desk. And here's his explanation that he gives in the course of this interview. It's the test that Louis or Louis Agassiz, the uh, 19th century Harvard naturalist, would give to every new student. He would take an odorous old fish out of a jar, set it in a tin pan in front of the student, and say, Look at your fish. Then Agassiz would leave. When he came back, he would ask the student what he'd seen. Not very much, they would most often say. And Agassiz would say, again, look at your fish. This could go on for days. The student would be encouraged to draw the fish, but could use no tools for the examination, just hands and eyes. Samuel Scudder, who later became a famous entomologist and expert on grasshoppers, left us the best account of the ordeal with the fish. After several days, he still could not see whatever it was that Agassiz wanted him to see. But he said, I see how little I saw before. Then Scudder had a brainstorm, and he announced it to Agassiz the next morning. Paired organs, the same on both sides. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, very pleased. So Scudder naturally asked what he should do next. And Agassiz said, look at your fish. Good, you've been paying attention. 
some things are uh, worth looking at. Some things are worth weighing and carefully considering and then carefully considering again and again and again and again because you can't see too much. An inexhaustible supply is there for your eyes, in this case for the eyes of your soul, to behold. Why am I bringing this up here after reading John 20? Well, you know, because of the, you know, if you were paying attention to how we were introducing this, we're talking about the things most worth considering, and that is the empty tomb. Easter, Jesus, his resurrection, his being raised from the dead, that is the thing more than anything else that we would do well to consider and to look at because the resurrection, in the resurrection, the deepest longings of our hearts are realized. The very deepest longings of the human heart are realized in the historical time and space event of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we simply must then stop and to continue and to continue and to continue and in in essence never stop, not stopping to consider the empty tomb. Because again, therein our deepest longings are realized. Now you say, what are they? I'm so glad you asked. We're gonna explore this over the next few minutes. Three of them. If you printed it out, this is where, what you're going to see in your outline. First, peace, the peace of God. The peace of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is the very presence of God. And the third thing is purpose from God. Those things are some among the most critical, some of the, most, the deepest longings, desires of any human heart, and we find it satisfied, realized right here, alluded to at the very least in this passage, certainly directly addressed in the resurrection. So uh, let's, let's look at this if we can for just a minute. Some of you have heard me uh, speak to this uh, um, statement before in, in the past. I'm going to repeat it now. Carl Menninger, uh, the famed uh, psychiatrist, was uh, quoted on more than one occasion as saying, that if he could assure the patients in most any psychiatric ward that they were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out. 75%. Such is the degree to which we as human beings are plagued by guilt and shame and the, the, the impact, the damage that that, that that does. Now, there are different strategies to deal with that, and we're all experts at a variety of them. One of them is to just try and fix it, to, to, to fix the guilt, to fix the shame, to work harder, to do better, to, do, to be a better person, to try and counterweight all that junk on our resume. So that's one strategy, to try and fix it. Uh, the other strategy, though, is it seems like it's totally different, but it's actually very much the same, is to just forget it. To just forget it all. To, to, to try and drown it all out by distracting ourselves with who knows what. Many things at our disposal. 
Those are two strategies, and they never work. Not deeply so. Perhaps temporarily it'll scratch the itch, but they will never actually deal with the damage that the guilt has done to our heart, to our soul, whether fixing or forgetting. Rather, we need to be freed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. And that's what we see alluded to here in this text. So you right here in verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There's two aspects to this peace of God here. The first is peace from God, a pronouncement of peace from God. Now, now think with me of the context. What's happening here? What's the heart state and, and literally the geographical place of the disciples in this moment? They are in a room, right? Oh, we know that. But it's a room that's been barred. It's a room that's been locked. Why? Why are they, why are they behind this locked door? The text tells us out of fear, out of terror. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of being identified by the Jewish authorities with this one that they just worked to have executed two days before. They're terrified that the next knock at the door will be for them. And into that context, Jesus steps right in. Now, if you really pay attention to the text, we don't know exactly how this happens. It could be, it could be his body passes right through the door. His resurrected body passes right through the door. That's a possibility. Another is, if you just read the text carefully, that he unlocks the door from the outside. Either one is a miracle. Either one is a miracle. And in either way, it points to the fact that he will not be restrained from caring for his own. He cannot be stopped. He refuses to be stopped. He is the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he will provide and protect and guide his own and do whatever it takes to do so. And we see something of that right here. Peace from God into that setting in which his Dear ones are so terrified, he moves into it and speaks these words of peace. But that then takes us to the second aspect of this peace of God, not just peace from God, but peace with God. Peace with God. Now, what else are the disciples likely feeling? We're not actually told this, but it has to be true, knowing what's transpired over the last several hours, just starting going back to that that Friday, they are disappointed, discouraged, distressed. Why? Because all their hopes and dreams and aspirations, they had put on him. They thought he was the Christ. And up to this point, they don't know he's alive. And worse, worse, not just the discouragement and the disappointment, but the grief and the guilt that they bear because in his hour of need, they took tail and fled. They deserted him. 
That's the emotional state of these folks in that room that night. And into that, Jesus comes. And what does he say? Not a rebuke. He doesn't remind them of that desertion, of leaving him to face uh, that trial and all, all the horror of that alone. He doesn't bring that up at all. But he speaks these words of peace. Literally, what Jesus is doing there when he says, peace be with you, on the one hand, you can say, that's a formal greeting of the time. Shalom is, is the, the, the Jewish word. You'd have to say in that context, it's the greatest greeting they could have possibly have, have heard. Shalom be with you. Shalom meaning in its richest sense, not just peace in the sense of absence of conflict. It's so much more than that. That word means the way things are meant to be, the way things are supposed to be, wholeness and rightness and flourishing. That's what shalom is, is speaking to. The way things were in the garden is recorded for us in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two books of the Bible. And in the last two books of the Bible, the way they're, we're told they're forever going to be one day, Revelation 21 and 22. Where things were and where things are heading. Shalom. Shalom, the restoration of all things. Peace through the Prince of Peace. And there he is. There he is, standing there, showing how it is it's going to be in the scars the scars that he bears, and he's speaking that word to them, an assurance of acceptance, an invitation to friendship and fellowship and forgiveness. So not just peace from God, but, oh, goodness, peace with God that he has accomplished in himself. The empty tomb the empty tomb, there's where we find the peace of God. So thinking about this just a little bit further, what happens when you know this peace? What happens to a, a man or a woman or a child who knows they've been forgiven? Here I'm speaking specifically of that peace uh, with God. What's the effect Here's the effect. It's a transformative effect. It'll blow up your relationships in the sweetest way. To the extent you know you have been forgiven by him, you will then be able to extend that same forgiveness to others. Let me say that again. To the extent you know that forgiveness yourself and have experienced that forgiveness in your life, you will therein be able to extend that forgiveness to other people. Do you think maybe that could have some relevancy for our day? Perhaps. Perhaps. I was reading an article just in the last couple of weeks, the online magazine Vox. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. Um, it recently ran a series of stories under the title, American Struggle for Forgiveness. Uh, There's a string of articles under that broader uh, heading. And here, here's an excerpt from, from one of them. 
the state of modern outrage is a cycle. We wake up mad, we go to bed mad, and in between, the only thing that might change is what's making us angry. The one gesture that could offer substantive change or at least provide a way forward, forgiveness, seems perpetually beyond our reach. It goes on to, the article goes on to, to list a number of celebrities who've been shockingly canceled in this unforgiving culture that we live in. And it goes further, this author says, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who's done wrong can atone, make amends, and retain some continuity between their life and identity before and after the mistake. We have no, we have no coherent story that would tell us, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, time out. Actually, we do. Tragically, that author's not familiar with it. But we've been singing about it all morning. There is a God who has taken on the debt of our sin onto himself and canceled it, therein enabling us to do the same with others. And in fact, he goes a step further and tells us we have to. We have to. And that's the story in which we live. Again, the resurrection, friends, is the realization of our deepest desires. Peace. Peace with God. Well, that then takes us into the, the next point, and that is not just the peace of God, but the presence of God. Here, again, is one of the deepest desires that we have. Let me give you another news story. I just came across this one. Uh, in, in Japan, there's a growing trend of elderly women who will confess to the authorities of having committed petty crimes with the hope of going to jail. I did not just misspeak. I often do. Not there, I didn't. With the hope of, they are confessing having committed petty crimes with the hope of being sent to jail. You know why? Here's some of the testimony of some of these dear women. There are always people around there. And I don't feel so lonely. That's not just in Japan. Here in the United States, a recent survey was done. Three-fifths, three for you math majors at 60%, three-fifths of the American populace said they're lonely. Um, left, feeling left out perpetually, misunderstood, without a friend. Three-fifths. And into that, we have this assurance of the presence of God. Again, chapter 20, now picking up in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there is some question. You might be wondering, whoa, what's, what's with this breathing thing? Uh, I'll be, be honest with you. The, the commentators here are, are not unanimous on, on exactly what's, what's happening here. What, what is Jesus doing here? Some would say, 
and it's a good point, it's possible, certainly possible, that it is in fact what Jesus in this moment in the lives of his followers is this is an initial bestowal, a down payment, so to speak, a foretaste of the fuller bestowment of the Spirit that was coming at Pentecost. That's one argument, it's one case, okay, that's fine. I'll just tell you from my vantage point, I think more likely it's not an initial bestowal of the Spirit, but an, act, an acted parable that Jesus is physically, symbolically pointing towards this one, preparing them for this one who was to come that they desperately needed, the Spirit himself. Just as surely, the idea being just as surely as we read in Genesis, as God breathes life into the clay, and that out of that becomes the living man, Adam. Here again, this God is going to breathe into the lives of people, causing them to really come alive, really and truly come alive. In any case, certainly this is speaking to the reality of the Spirit, the reality of His coming and the reality of our dependence upon him in our lives. Though the promise Jesus has spoken to this already in John's gospel, it's recorded for us, and I encourage you to go back and read chapters 14, 15, and 16. You can do it. Uh, in, in John's gospel, 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus is, is speaking of this one who was coming, that he is leaving. It sounds oxymoronic. He is leaving, but they're not going to be left behind, that we're not going to be left behind. Though he is leaving, we are not going to be left behind. Well, how in the world can that possibly be? I mean, he says it also, it's not just in John's gospel, it's actually in the very last sentence of Matthew's gospel. It's sort of this mic drop moment uh, there at the very end where Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, but you're leaving. How then are we not left behind? Well, I said you could read 14 through 16. I'll give you a taste. So uh, if you go to chapter 14 of John's gospel, John 14, verse 16, it's just the only place I'll read for now. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The idea being that Jesus has done this. He is this, he has been, the Greek word is paraclete. He has been this paraclete, this helper, this advocate, this counselor. It's a rich, rich word. He's saying, what I have been for you thus far, he will be for you from now on and will never leave you. And he will not be where your eyes can see, but he will be within you. He will be within you. The indwelling presence of God is what Jesus is speaking of here. These are, sh these are shocking words. Do we hear it? Do we believe it? Functionally, most of us in this room are not Trinitarian, but Binitarian, functionally. Father, Son, and I forget who the other guy was. Jesus is speaking here of the abiding, eternal, internal presence of God through the Holy Spirit. This is the Emmanuel promise, God with us, realized right here, right here, even in this stage of human history. It's spoken of again and again and again and again all through the Old Testament. Let me just take you to a couple places. Psalm 121, you may remember some months ago we were in a series in the 
songs of ascent, and this is one of them, Psalm 121, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Oh, is he ever at our right hand now? Uh, The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16, the prophet says these words, quite appropriate for Mother's Day, I would add. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And now with the coming of the Spirit, it's all that and more. How we need to lay hold of this, to lay hold of this and to believe this and to take this to heart and yet know this and yet know this at the same time. That presence of God that never goes away in the life of the believer is not always easily felt, right? It seems like there are times he's left the building. And that's a reality. It's a felt reality from our subjective perspective. I think in terms like an analogous Mary Magdalene's experience on that Easter morning, right? She's standing there on the outside of the tomb. There's Jesus. It's Jesus, her beloved teacher, and she can't recognize him. I just use that as an, as an analogy to our own experience. There are times that his, his presence with us just feels it's hidden, it's mysterious, but friends, hear me, it's real, abiding yet still, even if we can't see him. Friends, we are never hopeless. We are never alone, never, never. Steve Brown's oftentimes fond of saying, and I'm going to going on thin ice here, quoting Steve Brown without my notes. Um, Don't forget in the dark what you knew in the light. Don't forget in the dark what you knew in the light. He never leaves his people. He never forsakes us. He can never forget us. Well, that then takes us into the uh, the third point. So we have the the resurrection. The resurrection is the realization of our deepest longings, our deepest desires, peace of God, the presence of God, and purpose from God. Not left to wander aimlessly through life, having to make it up as we go. What am I here for? I don't know. Mark Twain is said to have said, he's said to have said a lot, but Mark Twain is said to have said that the Two greatest days in a human being's life are these. The day you're born and the day you figure out why. That's pretty good saying. Here we find out in John 20 why you're born, why you're here. Let's go back, take a look at it again. Verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I know there's a bit that's puzzling here. Let me just speak to what's clear first. Um, Again, we're not left here to, to figure this out on our own, not left to wander aimlessly through life. We have a commission. Clearly, there is a commission that is being given, Jesus is given to his followers. Some even call it the Great Commission. That's you know, Matthew's version, if you will. As it's recorded here in John, it's, it's, it's a commission with a proclamation. There's this commission, you, you hear the parallel, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, just as I have been sent by the Father, so I am sending you. My mission's not done, in a sense. My mission on this earth is not done. It's going to continue through you, through us, is what he's saying. Through us, his mission continues in this world. Now, think of the implications of that, that Jesus has given us, you and I, a commission. That's tremendously humbling because that means we're not to take this up and to do it in any other way than he has, right? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So this has to be carried out in obedience to him, the one who has sent us. That's tremendously humbling. It's also tremendously emboldening somehow at the same time because we know who has sent us. We're not self-sending. He has sent us. So comforting, humbling, emboldening, spine-stiffening, even as it puts us on our knees, all at the same time. Somehow all at the same time. It should also tell us something else. Just as the Father sent me, and then you think of what he endures and the hostility that he experienced, so too we as his followers must expect the same. He warns us of that. He prepares us for that. We should expect that, and therein, oh my goodness, the need to depend upon this spirit all the more, to lean into him with all of our weakness and frailties that are, again, so, so deep. So we have this commission, and again, also this proclamation, and that's verse 23. Again, I'm gonna gonna read it. I know it's puzzling. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There is so much that is compressed into that sentence. It can sound really confusing. It can make it sound like somehow we we are in a place of absolving people personally of their guilt. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying something, it's, so, it's, it's compressed, and he's saying it so boldly, trying, I think, to, to get our attention. But think with me of, of, of what we know. We know that man, mankind, has committed cosmic treason against God. God, not us, God is the offended party, right? He is the offended party. He is the one that therein is the only one that can grant this forgiveness, Uh, Our place then is never to pronounce this forgiveness because we cannot, but rather ours is not to pronounce but to point, to point, to proclaim and to point to the one, the only one who can. 
pointing others, proclaiming to others, telling of our shared need of one to take up our guilt and our shame, as only he has, as only he could, as we oftentimes say here, to live the life that we were supposed to live in our place and to die the death that we deserve to die in our place, to tell of that need, to tell of the, the very thing, the very need that our consciences, our played consciences tell us we need help, we need forgiveness, and then pointing towards the only means, the finished work of Jesus, the only means by which that can be had. Jesus' words here are, again, pointing towards one of these fundamental, deepest desires of our heart, and that is purpose of God, because in this proclamation, we see our purpose. In this proclamation, whatever shape it takes in word or in deed, that's our commission. That's what we're being sent to be and to do. Whatever way that's being expressed, whatever stage of life that you're in, whatever you can do in, in God's providence and where he has you, literally and metaphorically in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, whatever, then wherever that may be, this is our purpose, this commission, this commission. This is the cause that we have been given. You want a cause? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Every human being is hardwired down deep in their hearts to live for something more than themselves. It's why you read of, you may even know of, personally, individuals who have given themselves over to stuff that you want to label as crazy stuff. You know, zealots who blow themselves up in some places of the world, right? That's rooted in a desire for greater purpose, for a, a thing to give yourself to that's bigger than yourself. Now, I know on the one hand, we want to just slap a label on that as crazy and madness, but it's actually pointing to this deep, deep desire, this deep, deep desire that often goes awry, that often goes really badly, but it's there with all of us to give ourselves something to more than ourselves, and Jesus is putting it right in front of us. This is it. This is what I made you for. This is what I've saved you for. This is what I've redeemed you for. The resurrection is the realization, again, of our deepest desires, our deepest aspirations, and we see this in this purpose. Let me end with this. Uh, some of you have heard me speak of the core of discovery before. Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, uh, some have said it's the most momentous um, exploration, uh, expedition in American history. It's certainly the, one of the greatest adventure stories of all time. Uh, their, their task, what was their task? Well, President Jefferson told them what their task was. Here's some, a quote from a letter. The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal streams of it as by its course in communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. And it goes on and on and on. I, I don't, Thomas Jefferson did not know what a period was. But um, the preparation for the journey was extensive. Lewis studied astronomy and navigation and botany 
and medicine and biology and a host of other disciplines. He uh, collected some two tons of goods to take, guns, ammunition, medicine, food, clothing, all kinds of, of other things, and he had to given what they knew was in front of them. They left Pittsburgh, Jake, they left Pittsburgh in May 1804, returned to St. Louis in uh, September of 1806. That's roughly two and a half years. You think that's a road trip? They covered some 8,000 miles, moving through harsh, hostile, mostly, mostly unknown terrain. Extraordinary effort. But they wanted to find out what was there. They wanted to press into this new land purchased from the French. There was so much there, and they simply could not, could not, would not turn away. How much more the resurrection of Jesus? How much more the need we have not to turn away? Now, you're in the room. I don't mean this room. I mean that room. On that Easter Sunday night, you're in the room. And you can see him. And you can hear him. And your heart, the pace, the pulse of your heart is is skipping just a bit. Because something in what he is saying is striking a chord down deep in your soul, speaking to, you're longing for, peace of God, the presence of God, purpose from God. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? This is the realization of our deepest longings, my friends. Let's not turn away. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, we have in the, in the testimony, in the witnesses that we have heard from, in, in what John has recorded here, we have indeed seen you, and we have indeed heard you. Your reappearance, your resurrection, these words, these surprising, wondrous, amazing words hitting a chord down deep in our souls to know this peace that we can be forgiven, to know that you're present with us, that we are not alone, to know this this purpose that we are not left just to go aimless on through life day after day. No. Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to embrace what it is we're hearing? Would you help us to live it out? And not that attention would be drawn to us But, oh, Lord Jesus, that attention would be drawn to you through what you're doing in us. We pray in your name. Amen.